but it does give an underlying hope that really sustains us for life and ministry. My name is PJ. I'm one of the pastors here at BBC and one of the members here, and it's a joy to bring you God's word this morning. And so, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bibles and open it to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the chair in front of you, under the chair in front of you. And if you turn to page 1071, you'll find James chapter 1. The one is the big number, the chapter number, and the small numbers are the verse numbers. We're going to read verses 12 through 18, though the sermon will focus on verses 13 through 18. So James 1, 12 through 18. Just to see if you're awake this morning. If you're there, say, I'm there. there. All right, good. James 1, 13, or verse 12. Let's begin verse 12. Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. No one undergoing trial should say, I'm being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then, after he has conceived, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, by his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ, may this word of Christ dwell richly among us in all wisdom. Father, we ask now that this word would just do that, that your word, the word of your son, Jesus Christ, who is wisdom personified, that Christ, who is our wisdom, would powerfully open our eyes to see your glory. We pray that you would incline our hearts, give us a desire for your word and not material gain. Open our eyes, Father, to see wonderful things here in your word, to see the goodness of all that you promised to be for us in Christ Jesus. Unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us this morning with your covenant, faithful, steadfast love so that we would rejoice and be changed and be glad in you today and all of our days. Grow us in wisdom and grow us in faith, Lord. Some of us have particular lies we are believing Satan has blinded some of us and confused some of us and trials have beaten us down and others of us have been distracted by worldly treasures so much that we are not seeing clearly, Lord. Help us to see clearly through this word of yours. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. A few years ago, I did one of the dumbest things I've ever done as an adult. I gave my social security number away on a phone call a scammer, a stranger on the phone. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Foolish. I was in the hospital with one of our kids 
And I just, in the stress of the moment, I, I totally lost my bearings and, yeah, gave my social security number away. Um, I got a call saying that my name had been mixed up with someone in the state of Texas and there was a crime that was committed and, if the, and the FBI was going to press charges unless, <laughs> unless, I proved, unless I proved my identity that I wasn't there because someone had stolen my identity and used my identity out there. So I needed to prove that I was actually Peter Tobian. So uh, in a panic, I gave my social security and it was a scam, and the person kept talking. As the person kept talking, I figured out, like, this is, this is a scam. And so, like, I started, um, I started to, to get smart with the person and just say kind of snarky things to the person. And then started to uh, call the person out, and then um, the person hung up. And I was hoping that somehow they might think that I gave a fake number because of that. But at the end, after hanging up, I was gripped by fear. I gave them my real, my social security number. So at the end, I was gripped by fear. The peace that I had in my heart had evaporated. There was no peace in my heart and mind at that time. What if they use my social security number and, and really steal my identity? Uh, what if, yeah, what if, what if this happens? And, and now I'm in real, real trouble. And I thought to myself, why couldn't I see past the lie? If I could have just seen through the lie, then true peace would have been mine. I would have kept my peace. If I could just see through the lie, true peace would have been mine. But I didn't. I didn't see through the lie. Now, has that ever happened to you? Maybe not that specific situation. I'm sure you've gotten those calls before. I know that's happened to many of you. But have you ever been duped or deceived into believing a lie that actually took away your peace? Took away the peace in your heart. Maybe took away your joy or your happiness or your sense of security. Now... Whether you know it or not, I know the answer to that question is yes. Yes, you have been deceived before and duped before where your joy or your happiness or your peace of mind and peace of heart or your security has been taken away through a lie, through deception. That's what James is telling us in this passage today. But the stakes are much higher than losing your peace of mind for one or two days or having your social security uh, taken away or, or used for, for um, criminal causes. The stakes here are eternal death versus receiving the crown of eternal life. In other words, the stakes are eternal and infinite. Far more dangerous than giving up your social security number is getting tricked in a way that leads you to eternal hell and to death. And there are many who have claimed the name of Christ and who have called themselves Christians and have joined themselves to gospel preaching churches like this one who have tricked themselves all the way to hell. Fake Christians, fake faith, exposed and uprooted by trials and temptation and sin. Now we need this word this morning for ourselves and for the fellow members that we love and hope to hold in Christ Jesus. So God, through the book of James and through this section, wants us to see through the lies of temptation. And so the main command of this passage is verse 16. Look at verse 16. Here's the command. Don't be deceived. Don't believe the lie. Don't be tricked. Don't be duped. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. James loves us. He loves his church family. You're my brothers and my sisters, and I love you. Don't be deceived. That's, so the main goal of this passage and this sermon is this. See through the lies of temptation. 
see through the lies of temptation to sin with an x-ray faith, a faith that can see through, right? An x-ray faith so that you receive the crown of life. See through the lies of temptation with an x-ray faith so that you receive the crown of life. That's what we need to do. We need to not be deceived. Instead of being deceived by the lie, we need to see through the lie. And to to see through the lie, we need faith. We need an x-ray type of faith that can see through the barrier and the lies and the deception so that we don't fall into sin and bring forth death, but we receive instead the crown of life. That's what James 1.12 is about, right? Blessed is the one who endures trials. We've been talking about trials for the last three sermons, and now this is the fourth sermon on trials. Blessed is the one who endures trials and difficulties and pressures, in verse 12, because when you have stood the test and you are approved before God, you will receive the crown of life that God has promised to all of those who love him. True Christians endure. True believers, those who really trust in Jesus, they endure the trials of of difficulty. They endure the trials of of distractions and, and sin and temptations and guilt. They endure it all. And they hold fast to Jesus all the way to the end. And those who endure trials all the way to the end, they receive the crown of life. So how do we get this x-ray faith? How are we to see through the lie, see through sin? Here's the answer. So two points, verses 13 through 15 is point one, verses 17 and 18 is point two, okay? Point one, see through or see the origin and outcome of temptation and sin. See the origin and outcome of sin and temptation, See the origin and outcome of sin and temptation. And then point two is see the origin and outcome of true goodness. See the origin and outcome of true goodness. So we're thinking about origins, sources. We're thinking about outcomes and goals, ends. What is the origin and outcome of sin and temptation? Where does sin come from and where does it lead? Where does goodness come from and where does that lead? That's what you need to see this morning. So we need to grasp. The origin and outcome, we need to see the origin and outcome of temptation and sin, and then see the origin and outcome of goodness experienced in this life. So let's look at the first one, see the origin and outcome of temptation and sin. When we sin and fail, we're tempted, and often we do actually end up blaming other people for our sins, right? We are pretty good at making excuses for our sins and deflecting the real cause of our sins. Even Christians can theologically make an excuse for their sin and say, well, God is sovereign over everything, right? Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. So God planned for me to sin. It was part of God's eternal plan that I would sin. And he's sovereign over my trial. So it's God's fault, isn't it? My temptation came from God. I mean, Adam and Eve, didn't they try to blame God when they were in the Garden of Eden? When, when God looked at Adam and said, what have you done? Adam said, the woman you gave me, gave me this fruit. And then God goes to the woman and says, what have you done? The serpent deceived me. And they're blaming other people and making excuses. The question we're answering right now is where does temptation come from? Where does sin and temptation come from? Now for Adam and Eve, uh, it came from the serpent. That's where the sin and temptation came from, or that's where the temptation came from. But that's not where it comes from for us. Okay? Um, Let's look at verse 13. Where does sin, where does temptation to sin come from? No one undergoing trial, pressure, difficulty, no one undergoing trial that God is sovereign over in your life, no one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God. God. 
So where does, where does temptation not come from? It does not come from God. It doesn't come from Him. God does not tempt you. It doesn't come from God. You can't blame God for your temptations and your inclinations to sin. When sin looks attractive to you and you feel drawn to it, it's not coming from God. Why not? Look at verse 13. No one should, be, should say, I'm being tempted by God. Why? Since God is not tempted by evil and God himself does not tempt anyone. So the first reason, or the, the reason is God is not tempted by evil. God does not ever desire evil. He doesn't have a little even an, an inkling, not one atom of God, as if we could speak of God in material terms. Not any part of God, not any little desire in God goes towards sin. It's not even attractive. God is untemptable. He cannot be tempted by sin. There is no allure, no attraction, no, 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 no draw at all for God to want to sin. God is holy. That's why the angels fly around the throne and they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory, Isaiah 6.3. In, in Psalm 5.4, it says this, For you are, a God, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with you. It cannot, it cannot even live in the same space of where God is. Habakkuk 1.13 says this, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. And you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. God does not tolerate sin. His eyes are too pure to even look at sin. According to Psalm, the psalmist, Psalm 5, God cannot even dwell with sin. So, so God is not tempted by evil. He can't be fooled. So one, he has no desire. Uh, there's two, two other reasons why God can't be tempted. One is God knows all things. So you can't trick him. He can't be fooled or deceived because he knows all things. He is the truth. And then God is self-sufficient. The fancy theological word is the aseity of God. The aseity of God. The self-sufficiency of God or the independence of God. Acts 17 says, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. God doesn't need anything from anyone outside of himself. The psalmist says, if I were hungry, would I tell you? Would, would God tell you if he needed anything? He says, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't need anything from you. God doesn't need anything. Because he doesn't need anything, he can't desire anything out of any lack. Therefore, he can't be tempted by anything that would try to meet that need for God. God doesn't need anything outside of himself. Now, someone might say, well, PJ, isn't Jesus God? And if Jesus is God and he got tempted, how can God be tempted? Is this verse true or is Jesus not God? All right, so if you're thinking that theological question, that's a fair question to think. I don't mean to mock you in raising that question. Yes, Jesus is God. Jesus is not only God, he is also man. He is fully God and fully man, truly God and truly man. And so, yes, Jesus was tempted, but not through his divine nature. Jesus was tempted through his human nature. He lived a full human experience. Jesus was hungry. So when Satan says, turn these stones to bread after not eating for 40 days, Jesus felt the hunger and the need for food. God, in his divine nature, never feels the need for food. He doesn't need food. But Jesus, the God-man, through his manhood, 
in his genuine experience as God the Son in, in human flesh experienced need. So yes, Jesus is tempted not because he's not God, but because he's truly man as well. Okay, so let's just put that theological question to the side now. <clears throat> um, now look at verse 13 again. God doesn't tempt you because he can't be tempted. And then James just says it straight up. He himself doesn't tempt anyone. You know why he doesn't tempt you in your sin, in your temptation and in your trial? Because he doesn't tempt anyone, which means he doesn't tempt you. So that's why you shouldn't say it. God tests us like he tested Abraham. Remember when he told Abraham in Genesis 22, take your son Isaac and sacrifice him to me on the altar in Genesis 22. God is testing Abraham, but he's not tempting him to sin. Indeed, if Abraham did it, it wouldn't have been sin because he's obeying God's command. And um, he was testing Abraham's faith and Abraham showed faith in God's promise. But the point is God does test us. He tests you. He ordains trials for your life. And you can pass the test or fail the test and sin. But the temptation, the desire to sin, the draw to sin and the actual sinning, that does not come from God. God doesn't tempt anyone. He tests you, but doesn't tempt you. What's the difference between temptation and sin? Well, in God te uh, and, te and testing, what's the te difference between God tempting you and God testing you? In testing you, God's intentions behind the tests um, is for your good. Temptations have a goal. Temptations are trying to get you to what? Sin. To sin. It's an enticement to sin. So temptation has the goal of sin. God's testing has the goal, James 1, 2 through 4, Consider your trials joy so that it might build your endurance so that you may be, be mature and complete, lacking nothing. God's desire is for your good, for your endurance, for your completion, for your growth, for your maturity, for your wholeness, indeed for your holiness. And in the end, God's design, design for your test, James 1.12, is that you would at the end of the day receive the crown of what? Life. The crown of life, eternal life. That's God's design. That's why he tests you, to bless you. To show his glory, to give you good, to, to strengthen you. That's why he tests you. Temptation, the goal of temptation, the motivation behind temptation is to get you to sin. The second, second distinction between God testing you and God not tempting you is that um, God, God controls and intends the external circumstances and trials. But the temptations are an inner trial. Inviting us to sin. And that inner trial, that inner draw to sin is not initiated by God. It's not endorsed by God in and of itself. Now God does ordain it because God ordains all things that happen. But God ordaining that trial and that temptation is not God tempting you. Do you guys get that? God ordaining temptation for you is not God tempting you. God ordains trials and even temptations for the purpose of his glory and your good. God desires and designs the trial for your obedience. He does not personally tempt you to sin. He might personally try you and test you. But the temptation to lure you away from the truth, even when God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart by ordaining Pharaoh's heart to be hard. But God did not personally lure Pharaoh away into sin. God ordaining an evil act or a hard heart is not God sinning or tempting. It's not God personally enticing anyone. It's not God desiring that the person be deceived into sin in that trial in and of itself. Now, I said already, God ordains our sin. God may ordain 
and desire that a person sin in the bigger picture of his design and plan. But that is not God ordaining evil for evil's sake, since he is ordaining evil for his good, for, for your good and his glory. Let me give you an example. What do you mean God ordaining evil and desiring evil to happen for, for our glory? What's the most evil act in human history, the most unjust evil thing ever committed against another person? Murder, and murder particularly of someone innocent. And the most innocent of all is Jesus Christ, who never sinned. And yet he was murdered, he was lied about, he was oppressed, he was spat upon, he was beaten, he was hung on a cross, he was mocked, he was shamed, he was killed. Murdered on the cross. Is that evil? Was that evil acts by all these people? Yes, sinful, evil. Did God ordain that? Did God desire that, that Jesus would be crucified on the cross? Yes, yeah. Now, did God commit evil and do that? No, God ordained it for good. But he ordained all that comes to pass because he's sovereign over all things. So even in ordaining evil, he does that for the greatest good of all of his people. The point here is that God doesn't entice you to leave him. He doesn't draw you to leave him. Even when he commands people, remember we were going through the, the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, and there are parts in the prophets where the prophet would say, get your, get your sacrifices and go away. Leave me. Go, go, go indulge in your sin. Do you guys remember uh, texts like that in, in the prophets? When God says, get out of here. Stop worshiping me. Just go away. Go worship your idols. Is God saying that because God really wants you to keep sinning? Why is he saying that? What's his intention behind that? To cause you to what? Repent, right? To feel convicted. Oh, man, right? Like, go ahead, just do, just sin anyways. God, in even pushing you away, his effect of that and his intention is to convict you so that you see how stupid and how evil and how stubborn you are in your sin so that you would turn. He tells you to go away because, one, you've already rebelled, and two, he wants to sober you towards repentance. So if sin doesn't come from God, where, do sin, where does sin and temptation come from? Where do temptations come from? Let's finish. Let's keep reading on. Verse 14. Where does temptation come from? Verse 14. Each person is tempted when? When he is drawn away and enticed by what? His own evil desire. Where does temptation come from? Your own evil desire. Desire. It comes from your desires. And desires come from what you think you need. When you think you need something, you desire something to meet that need. When you lack something, you desire something to meet that lack. When you are in want, you want something. Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. When you are in want and you want something, you desire it to meet that want. So from these desires, from your need... Well, first of all, you have evil desires and your temptations, your draw towards sin comes from your heart, from your desires. Now we have inherited corruption. Psalm 51.5, David says that I was born in sin. Jeremiah 17.9 says the heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Answer, no one. Mark 7.21, Jesus said the evil doesn't come from the outside, um, but evil comes from where? From the heart, from the overflow of the heart. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says you're dead in your trespasses and sins and you walked according to the course of this world, according to the counsel of the prince of the power of the air. You followed Satan and the children of disobedience. That was your life and nature. Romans 8, 6 through 8, the, mind, the, the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. Apart from the spirit of God, you cannot not sin. 
you want to think about how we are desperately sick in our sin, come back tonight as we meditate on Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, about sin there, right before the flood. The point here is that your desires for what you deem good for you, this is good for me. That good for you draws you away from God and truth and obedience. It entices you away. This is where sin gets its power from deception. So look at, uh, again, look at verse uh, 14. Each person is tempted from his desires when he is what? Two words here. When he is drawn away and what? Enticed. The, the, the idea here is deception. It starts with maybe even sometimes a legitimate desire. Like Jesus, I'm hungry for food, right? I haven't eaten for 40 days. So you can be hungry. But then the deception distorts your desire to find a distorted and uh, godless fulfillment in something that actually won't fulfill at the end of the day, but cause more pain and harm. The term here, drawn away, has the, this word in the Greek has the idea of, it's, it's a word used for fishing. So it's fishing terminology. Now, I don't fish, but Justin does. And others fish. One of our members, Justin fishes. Right? We, have, we have some members who fish. I don't fish. But fishing is straight up deceitful. Right? <laughs> you have to be a liar to fish. No, Justin, Justin's not a liar, but you have to lie to the fish, don't you? You have to deceive these fish. You dangle a nice juicy worm that squirms on the hook as bait. The fish sees it. The fish notices a string but doesn't really think about what that might be. The fish seeing the, the worm, thinking about the worm, is drawn to the worm. And then the fish bites the worm and is drawn away from safety. As the fisherman starts to reel in the fish, right? Drawn away from safety under the deception that the fish thought it was going to get dinner, not knowing that the fish is now going to become dinner. Deception is the power behind temptation. I remember when I was younger, I don't know if this thing was true or not, but I believe these, these statements. When I was younger and there's Halloween and, and, you know, they would say, hey, in some candies, there's a what? That there are razor blades in candies. So you got to be real careful when you eat candy because there are razor blades in them that people want to do to harm kids. Now, no child would eat candy with the full knowledge and realization that a blade was inside the candy, Right? The only power behind it is if it was really deceptive that you thought there wasn't a blade and there actually was a blade. If you know the full situation and the danger of the situation, the temptation loses all appeal. It loses its enticement. It loses the force of the draw. If you know there's a blade there, you don't eat the candy. If you know there's a hook there, if the fish knew there was a hook there and it was going to die, if it knew it and fully realized it, it would not bite on the bait. Without deception, temptation loses its draw. Do you guys get that? The power of temptation is in the lie. It's in the deception. First you have a need. I need to meet this need. And then you start looking for that. And then when a lie comes around and says, here's where you can fill that need. And you believe that. That's the draw. Okay? And we're enticed. The word enticement is a hunting metaphor with the same idea. You're being lured. You're being enticed. You're being invited under the guise that all is well when in fact you are being deceived, tricked, and hunted. And it comes from where? Where does temptation come from? Not from God, but from where? Your own desires. 
And so the songwriter says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. So that's the origin. The origin of temptation and sin is from your own desire. What's the outcome? Look at verse 15. Then after desire has conceived, what does it give birth to? To sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to what? Death. So what happens when, so when desire gripping you, uh, when desire grips you and causes a decisive action, it gives birth to sin. What is sin? If you know our church catechism, I sent you guys the church catechism by email. What is sin? Here's the, the answer in our catechism. Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created. So it's, it's rejecting or ignoring God. Rebelling against him by living without reference to him. Not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. You could also say what is sin by saying what is idolatry. And the catechism says in question 29, idolatry is trusting in created things rather than cre the creator for our hope and happiness, significance and security. Okay, let me just say that again. It's trusting in the created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, our significance and security. You know what you call hope and happiness and significance and security? Desires. Who desires hope? Who wants to feel hopeful? Who wants to feel happy? Who wants to feel secure? Who wants to feel significant? All of us do. That's a real desire. That's an okay desire. Nothing wrong with that. But when you look to created things rather than the creator for that fulfillment, that is sin. When you grab onto those lies that, that the fulfillment is there rather than in God. Notice here, by the way, temptation gives birth to what? Or desire gives birth to sin. Is temptation a sin? No. no. Jesus was tempted. Did Jesus ever sin? No. no. You can be tempted and not sin. Temptation and sin are not the same thing. Now, temptation is supposed to lead you to sin, but temptation is not sin. Temptation is the inner invitation to sin. So when does temptation, when does the desire become sin? When desire connects with direction, your own direction in life, you sin. So here the idea is conception, right? When, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. So conception is the sperm and the egg fertilizing, right? For natural biological conception for us humans. So in, in, in regard here, what, what, what is, what's, what's the conception here? When you have a desire, an evil desire that's not fulfilled in Christ... And then you, it, it ties to a direction of life. You start to move in a direction. You start to think in a direction. You start to desire in a direction. It turns into sin, okay? So initial desire is not sin yet. It's a temptation. It's a thought that, you know, just crosses across your mind. And then when that is attached to a desire, it becomes sin. It gives birth to sin. So contrast David and Joseph. When David was on the rooftop looking out at Bathsheba, um, bathing and cleansing herself, presumably, um, yeah, from her menstrual cycle there and, and the details of why she did it. It was not abnormal for, for women to do what she was doing. And David is there and he has a thought, but and a, then a sexual, sexually immoral desire, but that's not temptation yet. And then when he gives in with direction and says, I want, I want, I want this, I want her. And he makes the call, sends out the messenger. He's already sinning before he even sleeps with her, right? I mean, that, that's already a direction. From the thought, a temptation to direction in his life, it turns from temptation into sin. As opposed to someone like Joseph, 
who certainly was also tempted when Potiphar's wife was coming up to him in Genesis 39 and, and nagging him every day, sleep with me, sleep with me, sleep with me. And he would not give in to that direction at all. How can I do this great evil and sin against God, he told her, and would not budge an inch in giving into the direction. Could he have a desire? Sure. But that desire was not met with direction in giving birth to sin. I remember when I was in college at the master's college and I was asking one of my professors as a 19-year-old struggling with lust uh, like crazy and just thinking, when is it a sin? I feel guilty all the time. And so I talked to my professor, C Dr. C.W. Smith, and I said, when, when does it move from temptation into sin? And he says, he looked at me and said, the moment you stop saying no. So just keep saying no and keep meaning no. And the moment you stop saying no, you've sinned. That was helpful. It's clear. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, um, you can't stop birds from flying on your head, but you can keep them from building a nest there. That's where a thought becomes, a desire becomes a sin, gives birth to sin. And what does sin desire to do? In Genesis 4, do you remember when Cain killed his brother Abel and murdered him and started lying to God about it? God said, where's your brother? He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper. And so God says, his blood is crying out. And then he warns Cain and says, be careful, Cain. Sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to master you, but you must master it. Sin is not content to just have you sin once. Every sin is built in with temptation for more sin. Every sin has, it's like those endless scrolling on a, you know, a social media app where just, it just keeps you lingering, right? I've noticed in, I don't know if it's YouTube, it might be YouTube or Instagram where like you scroll up and then, or if you just look at one, it, it starts to kind of halfway scroll up for you just to kind of draw you to keep scrolling up and seeing more short videos. It's built into the sin is an invitation for more sin, a draw for more. It's never content with just one. Its desire is to master you. And what's the, what's the end result? What's the outcome of sin? In verse, six, verse 15, when sin is fully grown and it's mastered you, what does it give birth to? Death. death. The outcome of your sin is your death. The result of sin is death. It's inevitable and it's certain. To use Paul's words, the wages of sin is death. What kind of death? Well, physical death. But it says in, Gen in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is what? Eternal life. Eternal life. So what's the wages of sin then? Eternal death. Eternal death. You're supposed to be the first fruit of God's creation, but if you let sin play out, it leads to eternal death. That means you die and go to hell and are crushed under God's wrath, burning in the lake of fire forever and ever and ever separated from God and isolated from people in darkness and destruction and wrath forever. That's the outcome. The wages of sin is death, and when sin is fully grown in your life, it will give birth to you going to hell. Now, for Christians, we have resurrection life, so we're like, oh, well, I'm Christian. Romans 8 1, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I'm good. I could sin because even when I sin, I'm not going to have that death, PJ. That's for the non-Christians. That's true. That's true. If you are Christian, there is no condemnation for you and you won't go to hell. Praise God for that, right? But obviously it's not good to just be like, well, I'm going, I'm going to heaven anyway, so it doesn't matter. What happens for true Christians when they sin? Yeah, it doesn't lead to death, but here are seven things that happen according to Wayne Grudem. You displease and grieve God. You get discipline from God. 
you take a step backward in your spiritual progression and growth. You shrink spiritually. You lose fruit in your life. You lose spiritual strength and effectiveness in your life. You lose reward in the future judgment, and you will be called out in the future judgment. And you possibly will prove, and now this is a possibility because we don't know if you're truly Christian, maybe. Possibly you might actually choke out your faith and prove that you're not really a Christian. That's true for me. That's true for any of you. you might, I might not really be a Christian. If I keep playing with sin and acting like I got this because I'm Christian and I'm a pastor. No, the outcome of sin is death. So where are you going with your sinning? What is the future of, of sin? The future of sin is death. Russell Moore writes this. Almost every adultery situation I've ever seen, for instance, includes a cheating spouse who honestly believes that he or she is not going to get caught. The cheater often doesn't want the marriage to end in divorce, but instead wants to keep everything the same, spouse, kids, and lover too. That's irrational and completely contrary to the way the world works. But you can convince yourself or be convinced that it will all work out for you. You're special after all. That's the way the temptation functions. We put consequences out of our minds, both temporal and eternal consequences. When it comes to God, we convince ourselves that God doesn't see or that he'll never call us to account. But in order to do that, we have to quiet our God-designed conscience that points continually to the criteria by which we'll be judged before the creator's tribunal. You have to get God out of your mind. You have to get the word out of your mind. You gotta get your conscience, you gotta shut your conscience up. You gotta sear it to keep going in your sin. And this word is to tell you to stop searing it. It leads to death and damnation. Russ Moore also writes, a loss of future perspective makes you crazy. A loss of future perspective makes you crazy. It's a lie. You believe the lie. You're deceived not just initially, but you're deceived all the way. And it can happen so fast. Sin happens so fast. You don't even think, you're not always wrestling with it. My, this week, I, I, I sinned against God and against my wife, Frances. We were in the car and I... Had an, uh, I was angry with her and I gave a sharp comment to her about her driving and making me dizzy. Now, my evil desire was for her to recognize my need to sit down without me having to tell her. I wasn't seated yet in the, in the car, in the, in, the, in the van. And she drove off and it was rushed because we we're trying to take our daughter to the hospital in an urgent situation. So there's completely understandable. But um, I was annoyed that she didn't let me sit down yet and I was getting dizzy. And so I just, in a very sharp and uh, mean way, said, can you stop the car? Can you pull over? And I thought um, my desire to want to not be dizzy and sit down justified a sharp and angry statement to my wife. And that sharp and angry statement was evil it was sinful, and that kind of thing leads to death. I thought it would feel good to say it. I thought it would feel right. I thought I'd feel justified. Do you ever feel that way? If you just get it out, you'll feel better? That's the, that's the draw, right? I need to feel better because I don't feel good right now. But it provoked my wife. It scared my daughter. And it left me feeling hollow and foolish. And most of all, it dishonored our God who is holy, holy, holy. That's what sin does. I didn't think about it. I wasn't like wrestling with whether I should say a sharp statement. Or not. I just said it. 
But there was a draw from an evil desire that led to a sinful outburst of anger and a sharp, unloving, mean statement. And let's think about another sin. Let me, let me just share with you from my devotion. Okay. Um, I'm reading 2 Samuel for my devotions. And I read about Amnon, David's son. David's second son from a, a, a second wife. And then his third son is Absalom. But Amnon was lustfully, sexually desiring his half-sister, Absalom's full sister from, from David's third wife. So Amnon is from David's second wife. He's lusting after her and he wants to sleep with her and indulge in his sexual fantasies with her. Um, even though I'm sure he's probably sleeping around with other people, um, just given his, his moral character. But he wants his sister. And he's complaining. He's like, oh, he's moping around. And his cousin says, what's wrong with, with the king's son? Well, I want to sleep. I want to be with my sister. And she doesn't want to be with me. And he says, the cousin says, who's one of David's advisors, says, why don't you just act like you're sick, pretend you're sick, uh, go up in bed, and then tell your dad, the king, that you want your sister to feed you the food and make you the food. And then just take her and rape her. So Amnon does the plan. He pretends he's sick. He asks for a sister. David sends his sister over. He, he try, she tries to feed food with all the other servants there. And he says, everyone leave, all servants leave. So all of her servant leaves except his sister. She comes and he says, feed me in my bed. And then he grabs her and then he, he takes her and sins against her. And then he, he pushes her out. It's a picture of evil desire, temptation, right? Feeling you have a need and then giving into the temptation and committing a crime. Now, I say that story because for my devotions, but there's a second story that's tied right to it because David sins next. You know what David does? When David finds out, he's the dad, right? Of both, daughter and son. What does he do? He is furious. That's what it says. The text says, David was furious, period. And then moves on to Absalom, who says to his sister, hey, stay here. And then Absalom ends up killing his brother, murdering his brother in revenge. Um, but Absalom does that a, a, year, a few years later. Why? Because what was David's reaction? David was furious. And what else? Nothing else. That's all he was, just furious. Is that, is that righteous, to just be furious? So I'm doing my devotions, and I'm like, I know there's a Bible verse here about like laws when you sleep with your sister. So I, I look in my Bible, Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18, verse 9, and later on, chapter, uh, verse 23 and 24, when you sleep, you're not supposed to sleep with your sister, not even your half-sister. If you do, you know you're supposed to, what's supposed to happen? The law of God says you are to be cut off from the nation of Israel. That's what the law says. So if David was a righteous dad and a righteous king, when that happened, what should he have done to Amnon? Cut him off from the nation of Israel and banish him from the land. Did David do that? Did he obey God? No. He had a temptation. What was his temptation? Ah, I love my son. I mean, I'm mad at my son, but I love my son. I can't do what God tells me to do. The way to really be fulfilled is to be angry and just sit on it and let him know that I'm angry with him. That will teach him that it was bad and that's enough. Without obeying the very explicit and specific words of God of what to do in a situation like this. An evil desire from a need gives birth to sin and when sin is fully grown, it brings forth what? Death. Death. That's what happens with sin. For Amnon, it's his lust, plotting, crime, and death. For David, it's a sinful anger uh, and evil negligence and passivity. Our sin leads to death. 
If you're not a Christian, this is the word of God for you. You need to understand that your sin leads to death. The wages of sin is death, and we're all sinners. If you're a Christian, you're a sinner. If you're not a Christian, you're a sinner. And because we're sinners, the penalty of sin is death because God is holy and righteous, and he will damn us and condemn us for our sins in hell forever. The good news is that God sent his son Jesus to live a life of never sinning, never giving into temptation, never giving into any desire that was evil or distorted or unrighteous. And yet, even though he deserves to not die, he dies on the cross. He takes death for us, dies on the cross for our sins and rises from the dead so that every sinner here who will repent from their sins and trust in Jesus can be forgiven of sin. If you receive Jesus as your Lord and your Savior and your treasure, then he will be your judge who will justify you on that last day because of his righteousness, not yours. So repent from your sins if you're not a Christian and trust in Jesus Christ or else you choose death. So we need to see through the lie of temptation, where it comes from and where it's going. But the second point and the shorter point is we need to see the origin and outcome of goodness, the origin and outcome of truly good experiences. Because James is telling us, don't be deceived, brothers and sisters. Don't be deceived where sin comes from, where temptation comes from, and where it's going. Also, don't be deceived on where goodness, the true good experience of life comes from and where it's going, the origin and outcome. Where does goodness come from? Look at verse 17. Don't be deceived, verse 16 says, my brothers and sisters, and now look at verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from where? Above. From above. Who's above? Coming down from whom? The Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. The Father of lights, that means God, the Father of, of the lights, the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets. Who created that? God did, from the creator. Every good and perfect gift comes from God, the creator, the father of lights. Even the lights are good gifts, aren't they? Praise God for the sun. Praise God for the moon. Praise God for the stars. Praise God for light. Without light, we wouldn't have life. And so praise God. He is the father of lights. And here it tells us, where does, where does every good and perfect gift come from? It comes from above, from God. Every good gift is from God. Anytime you had a good break, a good gift, a taste of generosity or kindness, that has been from God's generosity. Life, breath, rain, sunshine, food, water, clothing, shelter. I'm thinking about that in light of the hurricane and our brothers and sisters in, in Florida. Friendships, laughter, resources, financial provision, music, Comedy, respect, personal respect, comfort, security, affirmation, approval, power, influence, control, any sense of control. All of the goodness you experience comes from God. Comes from God's generous act. Every good gift comes from God. Not only every good gift, but every perfect gift. Every complete gift. Because God gives every perfect or complete gift. A perfect gift is large and full and complete. These are the only good gifts that actually complete us or fulfill our desires. It fills our need. So when you have a need, that's where your desires come from. Who's the only one who gives a, um, a gift that fills that need? 
The creator, God does, right? Every perfect, filling, fulfilling gift comes from above. It fulfills your desires. These are the gifts that complete us. Remember James 1, 4, the trials um, build your endurance and endurance has its full effect so that you might be complete and mature, lacking in nothing. What, what fills you? What completes you? The completing, fulfilling gifts of God. Sin promises you gifts that will give you fulfillment and make you perfect and complete. That's what happened to me, right? That's what happened to me in the car this week. Sin was promising if you just shout at your wife in anger, you will be fulfilled. You will be complete. That's what sin promised. But sin by its definition left me incomplete, imperfect, lacking and not full. Sin will always leaving you wanting. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. I want you to think about that word every. Not most gifts. All the goodness that you've experienced in your life comes from God the Father. All of it. Every single experience. Christian and non-Christian. Every single good and perfect gift, desire, thought, feeling, experience, relationship, all of it comes ultimately from God. Not from sin, not from Satan, not from the world, not from others. It comes ultimately and exclusively from God. So, brothers and sisters, don't be deceived by your desires and the temptations and the enticements promising you fulfillment, promising you the good gift, promising you the fulfilling gift. The paths of sin and godlessness and compromise don't deliver. Goodness never comes from sin. It is not found in the path of disobedience. Completion and fulfillment are not found in the treasure chests of transgression. Your desires should drive you to God and God's gifts for fulfillment and satisfaction. Your desires should drive you to prayer and seeking God for his way in fulfilling your needs. God is called the father of lights. He's the creator of goodness and life and light and love. He's the creator. And it says here in verse 17, a wonderful truth, that the father of lights does not what? He does not change like shifting shadows. He's not good to you only yesterday or last week, or seven years ago, God is not only good, He is always good. He's unchangingly good. He is immutable, unchangeable. God is consistent. He is faithful. He will always be good to you. Hear that? He will always be good to you. God is good to you in Christ, and He will never stop being good to you in Christ. Psalm 84:11 says, For the Lord our God is a sun and shield. Yahweh gives favor and honor. He does not withhold good from those who walk uprightly, who live with integrity. That's what, that's what um, Royce prayed. God does not withhold good from us. Do you get that? Like there's not one, like I need this one good thing and because God's not giving it, I'm going to sin. But the text says God does not withhold any good from you if you're a Christian. Romans 8.31, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave Jesus up for us all. How will he not also with Jesus grant you everything you need? Listen to Jeremiah 32, 40 and 41. I will make a permanent covenant with them. I will never... You hear this? This is unchanging. I will never turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will never again turn away from me. How bad does God want to do good to you? Listen to Jeremiah 32, 41. I will take delight in them to do what is good for them with all my heart 
and soul. I will faithfully plant them in this land. You know how bad God wants to do good for you? God does good for you with all his heart and all his soul and all his mind and all his strength. All of that is working for your good. He does not withhold anything good that you need at any moment in your life. So see, brothers and sisters, this is what we're praying, see with x-ray faith. Do you believe that? Do you believe those verses I just said? Do you believe God? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that the cross and resurrection is for you? Do you have eyes? Can you put those eyes of that goodness and that promise so that when the temptation comes and it's trying to draw you out from your desire, you can see right through it and say, nope, there's no good there. There's a razor blade in that fruit. There's a hook behind that worm. I know where goodness is. It's not over there. It's over here in God who never changes, who's always only been good in Christ to me. You need these eyes of faith. Jeremiah 2, 13, for my people have committed double evil. Do you see this? Here's the double evil that you need to see with eyes of faith. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water. You're thirsty. Where do you go? To a fountain of living water. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that can hold no water. That's crazy. That's not just evil. That's crazy. I'm thirsty. So I'm going to go to a big pile of dirt to satisfy my thirst. Here's God with a fountain of living water. Here it is, PJ. Just take it. I don't need that. I'm mad right now at my wife. I want this dirt. This will really satisfy me, right? I mean, that's crazy. That's evil. You're, you're giving into the lie. That's evil. If you're not a Christian, will you keep trusting your earthly and unstable treasures and sources of goodness? Or will you come to God who alone is truly good and trustworthy and promises that if you repent and trust in Jesus, he will be good to you all the days of your life. Let's go to the last verse here. Verse 18. What's the, out, um, what's the outcome? Well, one more thing before we get to the outcome. Here's another proof that God is good to you because here's, one of the, here's the greatest good that God gives you in verse 18. By God's own choice, not coerced or influenced by anyone outside of himself, by God's own free choice, what did he do? He gave you what? Birth by the word of truth. That's the greatest gift right there. He gave you new life. You were dead in your sins. God gave you new life. Your, your spirit was dead within you. God gave you his Holy Spirit and gave you a new spirit. You were dead. You were, you didn't exist spiritually in a sense. And God caused you to be born again. Why? Because he's good. He caused you to believe. You know why you became a Christian ultimately? Ultimately, it wasn't your choice. You did choose. It was a real choice. But ultimately, it wasn't your choice. It was God's choice. Do you know that God doesn't choose everyone to be saved? You guys know that, right? Do you know that if you're a Christian, God chose you to be saved? Do you know why he chose you to be saved? Because he's good to you specifically. And that choice was from all eternity. So how long has God had good intentions for you? Forever. God's always only wanted good for you. And how long will that goodness, how long will that good intention towards you last? How long will that last? Forever. In your situation right now? In your trials right now, will God be good to you? Yes. By his own choice, he gave you the new birth that he didn't have to give you. That's what, that's what John, John 1, 12 and 13 says. All who did receive Jesus, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name. Who were born, not of natural descent. 
or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. It was God's decision that caused you to be born again, not yours. God's birth to you actually caused you to believe in Jesus, because regeneration precedes faith. But the point here is, brothers, sisters, God has always been good to you. And he will be good to you because he caused you to be born again. And what's the outcome of this new birth? What's the outcome of God's goodness to you? Verse 18. What's the purpose of this choice and new birth? By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth. Why? What's the purpose? So that what? So that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You are the first fruits of God's creatures. God is going to make a whole new creation, a full harvest to come. And you are the first fruits. You're the first harvest products that God has given to the later harvest that's going to come. Jesus, um, this is used metaphorically of Jesus to the rest of Christians, but here it's all Christians to the rest of creation. There is a new creation to come in Christ, and the whole creation will be made new. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. But right now, the first fruits of that new creation is your new birth in Christ, and you experiencing the goodness of God. The gift of the new birth is the gift that keeps on giving because it gives you access and life and communion with the person you need most. And who's that? God himself, Jesus Christ. The new birth sanctifies you and enables you to enjoy God more and more through access to him. It gives you a future hope rooted in the cross and resurrection. This goodness comes down, it drops down from heaven into your lives at conversion and sanctification and transformation. And it draws you near to God so that you endure your trial after trial after trial after trial all the way to the end. So that you prove yourself blessed and receive the crown of life that God has promised to all of those who love him because of the new birth God has given them. The eternal goodness of God to come is experienced in your life right now in your trials today through your x-ray faith, trusting in the goodness of God through Jesus Christ for you. So, Christian, will you trust God in your temptations? Will you trust God and go to God for the fulfillment you need, the goodness you need, and not your sin? PJ, you're saying that for us to not sin, but what if we do sin? What if I already gave in a sin and now I'm wrestling with guilt? Well, is guilt another, when you wrestle with guilt, are you in another trial? Is that a trial? Yes. Are there temptations to sin when you feel guilty? What's a temptation usually when you feel guilty? To hide in your guilt, to minimize your guilt, to not share your guilt with others, to not go to God, to blame God, to go further in your sin. Well, I messed up already. I might as well keep going. There's all kinds of temptations when you're in guilt, right? But what should you do when you're tempted by guilt to keep on sinning, to keep on hiding? Go to Christ. Confess your sins to God. Repent from your sin. Confess your sins to brothers and sisters. Ask for their help. Repent from your sin. Fight your sin with all your might. Fight to see and experience the goodness of God in Christ. When you're beat down with guilt and you're experiencing it and feeling initially condemned, remember the gospel. Remember that Christ died for you and rose for you. Remember, even sing a song like Before the Throne of God Above where you say, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Look to Christ and the gospel. Church family, what should we do? Preach the gospel to each other. Gospelize each other. 
Sometimes we don't have the strength to gospelize ourselves. We need another member to recite to us a fighter verse, to remind us that God is good and he's our treasure so we don't have to look elsewhere, that God is Lord and in control so we don't have to be in control, that Jesus is gracious and our savior so we don't have to uh, justify ourselves and that God is the judge so we don't have to prove ourselves or fear other people's opinions of us. Remind each other that God is our treasure and that God is good. See through the lies of temptation to sin with x-ray faith so that you receive the crown of life. We need to see the origin and outcome of temptation and see the origin and outcome of where goodness comes from, where goodness is. This is a, the last sermon kind of summarizing these four sermons on trials. So let me just recap James 1, 12 through, 2 through 18. We're supposed to endure trials uh, and temptations by trusting in Jesus, by rejoicing in Jesus, by asking for wisdom when we don't have wisdom so that God would complete us by giving us wisdom. We're supposed to be last week boasting in our humiliation and the limitations of our earthly resources. And we're supposed to see through the lies of temptation and sin to see where true goodness fully comes from so that we endure trials and temptations and receive the crown of life and know that we are blessed. We need to taste and see that the Lord is good. So let me close by just saying, where's the goodness of God in the Amnon situation, the David situation and my situation? For Amnon, who had sexual desires for his sister, what, what, what goodness was God offering him? A godly marriage, and a holy marriage bed. It's not bad to want to be intimate, sexually intimate. That's not a bad desire. That's a holy desire, actually. That's a God-given desire. But God wants goodness for Amnon. I'll give you a wife. I will satisfy you. I'll give you the grace you need for that situation. What about David, who wants to love his son, but he just violated his daughter? What goodness does God promise David instead of just being angry and passive? God could say to David... I'm giving you my justice. You want full wholeness from this broken situation? You need to obey me and banish your son. That will give the wholeness and the right expression of anger. That's the goodness of God that was invited to David to still express love to a son, but justice as well. What about for me in the car? What is God promising me when I'm angry and want to be in control? God is saying, PJ, you could have self-control. You can humbly and firmly lead your wife and communicate in humility and love. You can model good leadership to your daughter right now. That's goodness. Do you want it, PJ? I didn't want it. I don't want it. But God is saying every good and perfect gift is not in that temptation. It's from me. Taste and see that I am good. If you could just see through the lie, then true peace would be yours. You could see through it. The lie is that any good and true gift comes from temptation. It cannot and will not ever come from temptation and sin. The truth is that every good and perfect gift comes from above, the gracious God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So trust him in your tests, in your temptations, and your trials. Father in heaven, we ask that you would give us faith to believe that these things are true. That every gift, every good gift, every perfect gift comes from you. It cannot come from us or from others or from this world or from Satan or from sin. It might be a short-lived goodness, but in the end it's fleeting 
And in the end, it's worse. Help us to trust you. Help us to believe your words. Help us to believe in Christ who died for us and rose for us. Help us to see Christ and see that you are good to us in him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.